0: morning, Severn. If you don't know me, my name is Anthony. I want to welcome you to the final week of our series we've been calling The Church. We've spent the last eight weeks digging through Ephesians chapters 1 through 4 to uncover what this thing called The Church really is, how God created it, his plans for it, and then ultimately how we as the church should live in light of it. And, and throughout those chapters, the Apostle Paul, who originally wrote this book, um, has used several different metaphors to help us picture these truths. And, and one metaphor in particular is the picture of a temple. So basically, what Ephesians has given us at this point is a blueprint for how to build a strong temple, a strong church that looks and functions the way God Designed it to. But now that we've studied this blueprint, really the, the question that should be on all of our minds is how in the world are we actually going to build this thing? Because remember, in, in this metaphorical temple, the stones are what the Bible calls living stones, flesh and blood humans. And, and people, like me, like you, are complicated, right? How do we, understatement, right? How do we Take all these stones and fit them neatly together so that we are built and grow up together for the glory of God. And the answer to that question is the same as it was 2,500 years ago when the ancient Israelites were actually trying to rebuild their literal temple. And they had been doing well, they had been making progress, but they were beginning to lose heart. So God sent them his prophet, the prophet Zechariah. And, and He sent them to, to encourage them to keep building, but also to tell them the secret to how to do it, to how to finish. And we see that in Zechariah 4.6. I just want to quote it to you. He says, it's not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The ancient Israelites needed to be reminded, and so do we, that building the temple, building the church will not happen by our strength or by our might, but only by the Spirit of God. And that's why we're going to end our Ephesians series in chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. I'm going to go ahead and read that to you here on the front end, Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 21. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Those verses, like the message of Zechariah, remind us that at its very heart, The church is not simply a community filled with all the right ideas about Jesus. We're not simply a community filled with all the right behaviors commanded by Jesus. At its heart, the church is a community filled with the very spirit of Jesus himself. And that's why all of this church stuff just doesn't come naturally because it's not natural. It is a supernatural work of God. So for the rest of my time with you, I just want to walk through Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. We're going to look at four things we need to understand about being filled with the Spirit so that we can truly be the church that God has called us to be. So I think it's a good place to start with definitions. It's always a good idea. So this first big idea I'm calling the nature of being filled with God's Spirit. So in verse 18, Paul gives us uh, what appears to be a pretty simple command. He says, be filled by or with, the Greek preposition can mean either one, be filled with the Spirit. But what does that mean exactly? And I think it would be helpful actually to start by talking about what it does not mean. We're going to clarify that real quick. First, Paul is not commanding these Ephesian Christians to receive God's Spirit for the first time as though they didn't already have Him. As believers in Jesus, they already have the Spirit present in their lives to some degree. In Ephesians chapter 1, he actually reminds them of this. I'll just read those verses to you real quick so you can see it. Ephesians 1:13 through 14, talking to the same Christians, he says, "In him, or in Christ, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession." to the praise of His glory. Now notice the timing in those verses. He says, when you heard the gospel, when you believed it, the Spirit then sealed you. So that's a past tense, it's happened, and it's done. And now you have the Spirit in your life as a kind of guarantee. He calls it a down payment that you really are God's child, and because of that, one day... Just like our song said, on that day, we will receive our full inheritance. So that is true of every single person who's ever placed their faith in Jesus. So when Paul tells them to be filled with the Spirit, he's not telling them to receive the Spirit for the first time. That's already happened. They're sealed. But secondly, he's also not telling them when he says, be filled, that they need a one-time second experience of the Spirit. Like, okay, you were sealed with them, but something's lacking. You need just one more filling of the Spirit. That's not what he means because the Greek verb that we see in our Bibles translated be filled is actually a present tense imperative. I apologize for the grammar lesson. I know everybody's got like bad memories of grammar lessons, but just I promise I won't delve that deep. It's a present tense imperative which really could be more explicitly translated keep being filled with the Spirit. So this filling is something that that should happen not just once, not just twice, but regularly over the course of our Christian life. So now that we know what it doesn't mean, what does it exactly mean to be regularly filled with God's Spirit after we've already received Him through faith in Jesus? And the answer to that question is actually implied in the comparison that Paul uses in verse 18. So let me just read it to you as a whole. He says, and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. Now, at first glance, it's probably odd to us that Paul would compare two things that are so dissimilar, being drunk on the one hand, being filled with God's Holy Spirit on the other hand. But this is actually not the first time that we see that comparison in Scripture. In Acts chapter 2, which is like a a history of the early church, Jesus' disciples are filled with the Spirit for the very first time, and, and the experience is so amazing that we're told it actually draws a crowd of spectators. And what some of them said is this, these men are filled with new wine. In other words, they're drunk. So the question is, how does being drunk compare to being filled with the Spirit? So I would, I would ask you to think about it like this. The more alcohol that someone drinks, the more they come under the power and the influence of that alcohol in the way they think, the way they speak and the way they behave. That's why we call it a DUI. We're driving under the influence, right? In the same way, the more the spirit fills us, the more we come under his power and influence in the way that we think, speak and behave. And just like alcohol, the Holy Spirit empowers us to do things that we wouldn't or couldn't do in our natural state. Things that scripture talks about like he empowers us to rejoice with joy that's inexpressible regardless of our our circumstances. He he empowers us to have this peace that surpasses understanding or to speak boldly for Jesus or to have a faith that believes the impossible. And we could keep going and going. But this is what it means to be regularly, repeatedly filled with God's Spirit, to come under His influence in such a way that you are empowered to do what you normally could not do. And, And just like air expands a balloon the more it fills it, The Spirit expands us, grows us, stretches us the more He fills us so that we can be filled more and more and more for the rest of our Christian lives. So now we know how being drunk and being Spirit-filled compare, but obviously Paul isn't just sitting them next to each other to compare. He means to contrast them as well, and that really brings me to our second big idea today, which I'm calling the results of being filled with the Spirit. We now know what it means. What does it mean? lead to. So again, let's go back to verse 18. We're going to just ring verse 18 for all that's worth. We're going to ring it dry today. So listen one more time and try to follow Paul's logic here. He says, and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. So if he's telling us on one hand, don't get drunk because it leads to something bad, namely reckless living, then he must be telling us to be filled with the Spirit because it leads to something good. Namely, the opposite of reckless living. So, if if we want to understand the good results of being filled with God's Spirit, we've got to start by understanding the bad results of being drunk, the reckless living. Because if we can define that, we can flip it on its head and figure out what the good results are. So, that's the big question for just a minute. What is this reckless living that he talks about? Depending on the translation you're reading, King James says, excess um, some other translations say debauchery. I know we all walk around talking about debauchery in our normal lives. The English phrase here, because it's translated so many different ways, the reason for that is because it's, it's a Greek word, like so many Greek words, it's just hard to capture in English. Um, but it's actually, an origi- in the original, it's just one word. We, we have a whole phrase. It's one word. The Greek word is asocia, and at its root, it refers to an extravagant wastefulness It's the same root word that Jesus himself uses in probably his most famous parable, the parable of the prodigal son. I bet most of us are familiar with that to some degree. Even outside the church, we use that phrase, the prodigal, um, in everyday life from time to time. So, So in this story, Jesus uses the same root word to describe the lifestyle of this younger son who squandered his father's inheritance and ended up with nothing. And that's actually why he's called prodigal. You know, I grew up hearing this story in church, and I just assumed the word prodigal meant like wayward or lost, and I think that's how a lot of people use it. It actually means something more like extravagance, and, and, and in its negative sense, it means wastefully extravagant. So that's why in Ephesians 5.18, Paul says drunkenness is bad because, not because it's fun and, and you just want to be a killjoy, because it leads to so much waste. When people are drunk, they waste brain power. You can't think clearly. They waste words. They can't speak clearly. They waste money. They have no self-control. They waste time because often when you're drunk, you don't remember what you said or did when you were drunk. And And then worst of all, you waste relationships because so often in the middle of drunkenness, you say or do things that ultimately either harm or embarrass yourself or harm and embarrass others. And of course, drunkenness is not the only thing that leads to that kind of waste. I promise I'm not really having a sermon on drunkenness on Labor Day weekend. I promise that was not not what I was trying to do, all right? The point is this. If being drunk is bad because it leads to reckless, wasteful living, then being filled with the Spirit is good because it leads to the opposite, focused, purposeful living. In other words, alcohol dulls us while the Spirit sharpens and focuses us. And just to prove I'm not making that up, I want you to listen to how the Apostle Paul actually led into this topic in the first place. He doesn't just start talking about it in a vacuum. If you back up three verses before verse 18, this is Ephesians 5, 15, listen to what he says to lead up to it. He says, pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people But as wise. So before he tells us not to get drunk, he says, pay careful attention. Another Greek word that's really just one word in the Greek, and it literally means accurately or exactly. We are called to walk or live accurately or exactly. What does that mean? Verse 16. Here's how we do that by making the most of the time because the days are evil. So now connect all that with what we just talked about in verse 18. As Christians, We are called to live not recklessly and extravagantly, but with accuracy, focus, and clarity. How? By not wasting the time we've been given, by not allowing it to be robbed from us, but to buy it back. That that phrase literally means to buy back the time, to redeem it, to make the most of it. And the way we can live that kind of focused, purposeful, make the most of our days kind of life is by being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, Some of you probably know the name David Cassidy. Okay, that's more than the 9 a.m. That just means you're older, I guess. All the young people come to the 9. For those of you who don't, (laughs) I'm getting in trouble, man. Sometimes you go off your notes and you're like, why did I do that? For those of you who don't know who David Cassidy is, he was a very popular young adult actor in the 1970s, um, you probably are familiar with the Partridge Family TV show. He was the star of that show. He was the, the lead singer of the Partridge Family band. And if none of that means anything to you, in a more modern context, maybe compare him to uh, Justin Bieber or Miley Cyrus. At the, I know, people are getting upset. I don't mean it. <laughs> At the height of his fame, David Cassidy's fan club was bigger than that of the Beatles and Elvis. But, But, like many other celebrities, young adult and otherwise, The pressures and the pleasures of fame led him to a lifestyle that Ephesians would call reckless living, drugs, alcohol abuse, multiple DUI arrests, an extramarital affair. And as late as 2017, at 67 years old, David Cassidy had to admit to his fan base that he was still struggling with alcohol abuse after years of claiming to be clean. Now, I could stop there, and that's a tragic story, but unfortunately, I have to make it even more tragic, and this is the reason I'm telling you this story. Listen to this. In 2017, he also died, and according to his daughter, his last words on this earth were these, so much wasted time, so much wasted time. Now, I would wager that most of you are here today because you believe in Jesus, because you believe in the Bible. But I also believe that whether you're here or listening online, that there are some of you who haven't bought into all this Christianity stuff. Uh, You're skeptical, or, or maybe you're hurt, or maybe you're afraid. Regardless of where you're coming from, I absolutely believe that there's not a single person listening to me that wants to end their life with those words on their lips, We might put up a front we might pretend like we don't care but all of us deep down want to live a life that matters with purpose and direction and what the apostle paul is telling us here what god is telling us is that we can have that kind of life by being filled with his spirit so the next most obvious question well what does that look like what does a life that has purpose and direction and clarity and doesn't waste the time we've been given what does it look like. And that brings us to our third big idea today. I'm calling it the picture of a Spirit-filled community. So after Paul's command to be filled with the Spirit in verse 18, he then lists out this string of five participles, ing words, five of them, to describe what it looks like. Let me make a big disclaimer here. Of course, this is not the only picture of what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. There's lots of places in the New Testament that look at this from other angles. But what we see here in these verses is especially relevant as we seek to wrap up our series on the church. So just listen to it one more time in verses 19 through 21. Paul has just said, be filled with the Spirit, and now he describes what it looks like, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, that is a mouthful. And there's probably a dozen different ways we could just sort through all of that. I think the simplest way, though, is just to take all of that and to divide it into two broad categories. And I'm going to call those categories the horizontal and the vertical. And to, and to see why I'm using those phrases, it's best for us just for a minute to zoom out and look at this structure as a whole and how, how Paul has structured this thing At the very beginning of this section and at the very end, we get what I'll call two bookends. At the beginning, he says, speaking to one another, and at the end, he says, submitting to one another. Very similar phrasing and ideas, this one-anothering that he's talking about. That's the horizontal dimension, how the Holy Spirit empowers us and affects us in the way that we relate to other believers horizontally. But then, sandwiched in between those two bookends, Um, We've also got two actions that are pointing in a completely different direction. He says singing and making music with your heart to the Lord and then giving thanks always to God. So that's this vertical direction. The Spirit also comes and affects and empowers the way that we relate to God vertically. So what I want to do is talk about each of those separately and then we'll bring them back together and I'll show you how they connect. So. When we're truly filled with God's Spirit, the way that we horizontally interact with each other as Christians is transformed. Specifically, Paul says that we will speak to one another and we will submit to one another. And if you'll notice, one of those things is a very active thing and the other is a very passive thing. The Spirit will empower us to actively serve each other, especially by speaking. So think things like teaching, encouraging comforting, rebuking, prophesying. We could keep going on and on and on. A lot of you are probably familiar with that work of the Spirit to empower us to actively speak to one another. What we're probably less familiar with is that second idea, He'll also empower us to passively submit to one another. That word literally means to put ourselves underneath someone else. If you keep reading in Ephesians 5 and then on to chapter 6, Paul will immediately give us three examples uh, of how this plays out between husbands and wives, parents and children, and masters and slaves. And each of those really are like a sermon to themselves. The point is this, that all of us as Christians, whatever role we might find ourselves at different points in our lives, all of us as Christians will have times in our life together as a church where we're the ones follow, leading excuse me, and where we're the ones following times where we're the ones serving, and then times where we're the ones being served, and then we're going to have times where we're the ones speaking, and times where we're the ones having to listen. And that kind of community life requires a very rare and a very difficult combination of great confidence on the one hand and great humility on the other. And the Holy Spirit is the only one who can fill us with both at exactly the same time. That's the horizontal dimension. But remember, sandwiched between those one another statements, we get this vertical dimension of how the Spirit fills us. I'll read that to you one more time. This is the second half of verse 19 through verse 20. He says this, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of that can be summed up with one word. You probably already guessed it, worship, worship. Being filled with the Holy Spirit always leads to passionate, heartfelt, grateful worship of God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. But maybe here's the most important detail to notice. It is no accident that that Paul put the worship of God in between those two statements about speaking to and submitting to one another. He put worship at the center because it is truly central. When we worship God from our hearts, it fuels and empowers and motivates our love and service and submission to one another. And we can actually see that connection explicitly right here in verse 19. I know we've already looked at it, but one more time, I wanna, I wanna just break it down real quick. Look at verse 19 again. He starts out by saying, speaking to one another. Now, what we would expect probably for him to say next to continue this thought would be something like speaking to one another in teachings, conversations, sermons, whatever. Those are things you speak, right? But instead he says speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now I'll hit the brakes. Does that mean that Paul wants us to live every day like we're in a musical? Because I was studying this and hoping that can't be the answer, right? Are we literally supposed to walk? Hello, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Is that what we've got to do? Thankfully, of course not. That's not the answer. The rest of the verse explains what he means here. He goes on to say, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. So so the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that we're speaking to one another are first and foremost being sung to God. Here's how this plays out. In worship, together with other believers, we, we sing how great is our God and we're directing our praise to God, but simultaneously, we are declaring to everyone around us, our God is great. And we, we sing to the Lord and we give him thanks for his amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And simultaneously, we are reminding our brothers and sisters to be freshly amazed by that grace. And that is why in person Corporate worship is so vital, so important. It doesn't mean that there aren't circumstances that come up and you can't make it to church and you shouldn't go online, of course, of course. But in person, gathering together worship has to be a priority as a church. Listen to how the philosopher James K.A. Smith put it. He said this. I love this quote. We need the guardrails of showing up for prayer and worship. And here's why. I know we can relate to this. Some days, I show up at church with my doubts, and I'm kind of counting on you to sing for me. This is the picture that Paul is painting of the spirit-filled life. It's a life of corporate worship together with other believers of God that fuels love and service and submission to one another. And I think it's a beautiful picture, but some of you may be scratching your heads remembering what I said just a minute ago. I explained that being filled with the Spirit leads to a life of focus and purpose instead of a life of wastefulness. But how is the life that we just described not a waste of my time, talents, and energy? In other words, couldn't I be doing more productive things than worshiping God, you know, submitting to the teaching of my pastors, encouraging my brother or sister? Couldn't I be doing more productive things? And the simple answer to that is no. I'm not saying you can't do or shouldn't do other things. Of course you should. But there is no greater thing to focus on, no greater purpose to live for than to worship God and to love one another. And here's how I know this is true. Way back at the beginning of this series, in the very second sermon, Pastor Ryan talked about the master plan of God. I'm not going to pop quiz you here. I'll just remind you on this Labor Day Sunday of what he said it was. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, so this is back at the beginning, Paul tells us that God's master plan is to one day, on that day that we sang about, reunite everything in Christ, that there will be no more hatred and division, but only love and unity in Jesus. But that's not all he says. In chapter 1, he also three times repeats the same phrase when he's talking about the plan and the will of God. He repeats the same phrase uh, to, to tell us what its end goal is. He says, it's all to the praise of His glorious grace. In other words, the end result of the master plan of God is worship. This is the purpose for which God made us and sent Jesus to save us, to bring us all together in love in Christ, to worship Him forever. That means That when the Spirit of God fills us and empowers us to worship God and love each other, at that moment, we are doing what we were made to do. We are fulfilling our greatest purpose. We are, at that moment, being truly and deeply human. When we live this kind of Spirit-filled life, we're not wasting time. We are practicing things that will outlast time itself. So now we know what it means to be filled with the Spirit. We know what it produces. We know what it looks like. So the only question left to ask is how do we do it? How do we do this thing? And that brings me to my final idea today. I'm going to call it the posture of becoming Spirit-filled. This entire teaching has hinged on this very simple command, Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. But even though it sounds simple, Obeying that command is a little confusing. It's not like any other command. Most commands are commands for you to do something, but this one is a command to have someone else, the Spirit, do something to you. How do you obey something like that? I'll explain with a personal story. A couple weeks ago, um, my wife and I, Tiffany, decided it was time to cut our one-year-old son's hair for the very first time. I mean, the poor kid was like cousin it, he was having to like divide his hair just to see. So it was time, the time was there. And, and I think I've said this before, you know, there's gonna come a day where my kids are like, dad, please stop using us in sermon illustrations, but it is not this day. Um, I have three kids, right? And so I, this is not my first rodeo with cutting a one-year-old's hair. I feel like I kinda know what I'm doing. So my plan was to take the clippers and just zip, zip, you're in, you're out, nobody's hurt, right? My wife, to quote her, said she did not want me scalping him, whatever, all right? So, we used scissors. And no kidding, like I had this kid basically like a full Nelson, and he's just like looking, and every time we tried to go, cut, 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 do it now, and it just doesn't matter, right? It's a battle. It was a battle. And the results were great, all right? Don't... My wife is actually here for this, or she listened to the 9 a.m. I thought I got away with it, but I didn't. Here's where I'm going with this. My older children, three years old, seven-year-old, so much easier. You take them to the salon, you take them to the barbershop, and they just walk out with a beautiful haircut. It's like, there's no fight, no tears, it's just like magic. What's the difference? Obviously, none of my th- three children know how or can cut their own hair. The difference is, my older children are mature enough to know how to assume the correct posture to receive a haircut from someone else. And I think you see where I'm going with this. You and I cannot fill ourselves with the Holy Spirit. We cannot make him do it on our command, but we can grow and we can mature enough to learn how to assume the correct posture and place ourselves in the right position for him to fill us. So, what does that look like? What are these postures? There's lots of answers to that biblically. As a matter of fact, right here in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul gives us at least four or five different answers to that. In Ephesians 4.30, he tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit through disobedience. So one posture to be filled with the Spirit would be the posture of obedience to God's commands. In chapter 6, verse 17, he tells us that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, the Bible, Scripture. And then in the very next verse, he says to pray in the Spirit. So there's two more postures if you want to be filled with the Spirit. You need the posture of hearing and believing God's Word. You need the posture of prayer. All of those things are vital. If we had time, we could expand on them. So don't think they're not important. For this teaching, since we're drawing to a close, I really want to focus on two postures that are maybe kind of like the glasses that you lose but really are on top of your head. They're so obvious that we miss them. In chapter 5, verses 19 through 21 we just spent a few minutes looking at this picture of what it looks like to be spirit-filled. And at the risk of being repetitive, one more time, here was the picture. A picture of corporate worship that leads to love, service, and submission to one another. So, if we want to be regularly filled with God's spirit, and now we know that's what it looks like, then we should start doing those things. Think about it like this. If, If you want to learn how to swim... You can read about it in a book you can talk to your friends about it but you'll never actually do it until you get in the water might be scary might be uncomfortable but the only place where swimming happens is in the water if you want to be filled with god's spirit you can study it talk about it pray about it and all of that's great and important but it won't happen until you actually put yourself in the place where you know it actually happens in that position that place is together with other believers worshiping God and actively and passively showing love to one another. So, question, do you want to be filled with the Spirit? And there's no way you can say no now. Of course you do. So come to church regularly on Sunday mornings with other believers. Sing to the Lord with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Place yourself in submission to the teaching and leadership of the pastors and elders, and then speak to other believers, speaking words of encouragement, comfort, kindness, even correction. All of that is so vital to being filled with God's Spirit, but don't stop there. We know, let me, let me just clarify something here. Sunday mornings are wonderful. Sunday mornings, I'm gonna go farther, are essential to our life together as a church, but it can be very easy to blend in and hide on a Sunday morning. You can walk out of this building not having spoke to a single person on a Sunday morning. So I would just ask you to consider taking things a step further. Consider gathering together in a smaller setting with a smaller group of believers where it's easier and probably also a little more uncomfortable, a little more awkward, but easier to speak to one another, submit to one another, and worship together without just feeling like you're another face in the crowd. Question is, where could we find (laughs) (laughs) that kind of small group setting? And I have good news for you. Completely by coincidence, (laughs) this week Severn's small group fall semester is starting back up. David Brower has been working really hard on it, and 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 this entire sermon has been one big bait and switch engineered by our small groups director david i didn't even know he was doing it until i got to this point in the sermon so there it is right in all seriousness think about it like this what better context of course sunday morning worship is vital in the early church in jerusalem they met together in the large crowd as a temple but then during the week they met together in people's homes what better context to practice the picture of spirit fullness than the same way the early church did in ephesus and across the roman empire by meeting in people's homes to worship God and grow in love for one another. Having said all that, there's still one missing piece of this puzzle. There's one final posture that's absolutely non-negotiable if we're going to be regularly filled with God's Spirit. And this is going to be the last thing that I say, so I'll go ahead and invite the worship team to come back up. And as they're coming, I just want you to, to think about something. Isn't it interesting that Paul commands us to be filled with his Spirit but then in his description of what that looks like, he doesn't actually mention the Holy Spirit. He does not say, be filled with the Spirit, singing and making music in your hearts to the Spirit. He says, singing and making music in your hearts to the Lord, to Jesus. And then he does not say, giving thanks always to God the Father in the name of the Holy Spirit, but in the name of the Lord Jesus. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's mission is not to make much of himself, but to make much of Jesus. Jesus himself told us that in the Gospels. Jesus Christ is the center of all of this. As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ was the first one to show us what it truly looks like to be filled with God's Spirit. He only lived for 33 years on this earth. And and out of those 33, only three of them did he spend in full-time Public ministry. But if there was ever anyone who did not waste their life, who lived with purpose and focus, it was Jesus. He think about it, he served others by actively speaking the good news of salvation, by, by speaking forgiveness, by speaking healing, by speaking freedom. But then he passively submitted himself to a torturous death on the cross that ultimately would result in bringing hope to generations of people for thousands of years up until today. How in the world does one man accomplish so much in such a short amount of time? And of course, our knee-jerk answer would be to say, well, he's God, he's the second person of the Trinity. Yes, all of that's true, but the gospels actually tell us something surprising, that at the very beginning of his ministry, before he'd done any public miracles, before he'd done any public teaching. It says that Jesus Christ was filled with the Spirit and that he went out to do ministry, not in the power of his divinity as the Son of God, but in the power of the Spirit. He lived a life of purpose and focus, making more of his days than anyone in history by being filled with the Holy Spirit. Spirit. And now we would look at that and say, What an amazing example. He's our inspiration. And yes, and amen, of course he is. But so much more than that. Because as Jesus lived this life of active service and this life of passive submission, he was also simultaneously offering the perfect worship to God his Father. Not bringing a sacrifice to cover his own sins, but bringing himself as a sacrifice to cover our sins. This morning on the way to church, I was listening to a song, uh, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. I've listened to it many times. But but this morning, a verse in that song hit me like it's never hit me before. It says, it was our sins that held him there until it was accomplished. My sins held him there. Jesus didn't bail out halfway through. He he stayed there until it was accomplished accomplished. Well, what was accomplished? Here's what the scriptures tell us, that that when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't end his life like David Cassidy saying, so much wasted time. He ended his life by saying, it is finished. And at that moment, there was this veil in the temple, and, and it separated the people from God, from the most holy place of God. And at that moment, it was ripped from top to bottom, so that now through faith in Jesus, we ourselves can be the temple. We get to be the dwelling place of God through His Spirit. So if you, if you don't want to waste your life today, if you want to live with purpose and focus and clarity, if you want to make the most of your days, in short, if you want to be filled with the Spirit, then make sure above everything else that you are filling your eyes and your ears and your mouth and your heart and your mind with Jesus. Because Jesus is the cornerstone of this temple called the church. And Jesus is the very reason why the Spirit has come in the first place. That we might know Him, love Him, and grow to be like Him until the day when we see Him face to face. Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, thank you for the church. The bride of Christ, purchased with his blood, so precious. God, I know in my own life there have been times where I've been critical of, quote unquote, the church, not realizing that that's me. I'm part of that thing. I have some growing to do, I have some changing to do. Forgive me for that attitude. God, put in all of us a love for your church because you love your church. I wouldn't let people badmouth my wife. This is your wife. The bride of Christ, thank you for the church. we got a lot of growing to do. We admit that. We confess it. We're not where we should be, but we're here to pray and ask you to fill us with your spirit that we might grow to be the church you would have us to be. And we're also recognizing we can't make you do that, but we also know you want to do it. You love to do it. It is your goal for us to fill us with your spirit that we might know you, love you, and worship you. So, God, let us not live our lives recklessly and extravagantly wasting our time. But, oh, God, let us see the privilege we have that we get to be filled with all your fullness so that we can live a life of meaning, so that for all eternity we won't live with regrets, but we will live with the joy of knowing that we are with our Father and with our Savior. And and above all that, God, I pray that you would help us every single day towards this end of keeping our minds and hearts and everything set upon your son, Jesus. We can never get enough of Jesus. Help us to focus on him. Help us to make sure that all of our worship centers on him because at the end of the day, the heart of worship is all about Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.